Father, thank you that um, thank you that you are at work amongst us. That there is so much going on, Lord, uh, not just in this ministry, but in our lives in general and in the world at large, Lord. There is so much going on and so many signs of your coming, your second coming, Father. And um, help us to understand. Uh, I don't know if I said this last time, Lord, but um, that we are to occupy until you come. And uh, and understanding what that means, actually, to occupy and to be about your business. Um, sometimes we're a bit slow to understand what that is, Lord. So I pray that tonight you'll give us that insight through Luke's gospel as to what it is you want us to be doing and how to be doing it and and how important it is. And, Father, that you would show us that each one of us is actually called to do this work, the work that you created in advance for us to do. So I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to show us, and uh, we praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Luke 19. We actually left last time. Uh, we're going to review just a little bit of what we read last time. So from, ch- from chapter 18, verse 35, to 19, verse 10, we did talk about this last week, but if you could just somebody read those verses... We'll review very quickly what we saw. So, A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on him. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Yes, please, to verse 10, please. Mm. (coughs) He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, who was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods... I give the poor, and I have defrauded any, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thank you. 
Okay, we talked about this at the end of last week, and um, in, in terms of what, what faith does, what um, trusting Jesus does, and I think these two little stories um, tell us quite a lot about what putting our trust in Jesus will do. So with the first one, with the, um, uh, with the blind man, um, what what happened to the blind man? What did what did he receive because he trusted Jesus? His sight. His sight, yeah. So he Jesus passed by and he cried out and Jesus said to him, What do you want? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. So um uh believing in Jesus uh for this man gave him physical sight, but also he had also already received spiritual sight because he was crying out to the Lord for that. Um, so he, because he had put his trust in Jesus, he had spiritual sight. He had what I call the eyes of faith. So he was able to understand that here was Jesus and he would, was able to restore his physical sight. What about Zacchaeus? What, what, what did his trusting God or trusting in Jesus cause him to do and what did it give him? It, it, it made him honest. Yeah, it brought him. So what would we call that? transformation it transformed him and um and so i think the two things go together actually and uh, in a way that perhaps we didn't talk about last time and that is that i think that a spiritual sight enables us to do our part for the transformation that is required i mean jesus does transform us we are transformed by the holy spirit into the image of god but we have to go along with that work and uh, Zacchaeus was happy to go along with it because immediately he said that he would pay back fourfold to um, four times as much to anyone I have defrauded. And actually, when, if you go back into the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, that was much more than he was required to do. So he's not just saying that he'll keep the law and repay uh, what it was. And I can't remember what it was, but maybe it was twice as much. Uh, if you defrauded, he's doubling that amount. And, and I think that we're being shown that this transformation is a willing transformation in the heart of Zacchaeus. And um, it's interesting, actually, what to think about Zacchaeus. And, and for a long time this week, I have to say that for some reason, I was starting to write up this lesson and thinking that Zacchaeus was uh, Matthew, was Levi. And because he was a tax collector, so I started writing about how he came to faith differently to Peter and Simon. And as I was going on, I was thinking, there's something wrong with this. I'm not sure what it is. And then I realized that he is a tax collector, but he's not Matthew. And Matthew, actually, Levi, was, um, he met Jesus in chapter 5 of Luke, so quite a time before this. But it did make me wonder when I realized that, that I wonder if Levi knew Zacchaeus. Um, because they were both tax collectors, they were both very rich. They lived in different places, but did he know him? And if he didn't uh, know him particularly, was Levi, after his own transformation, his salvation, was he praying for all the other tax collectors in Israel? I realize it's a bit of a stretch, but it did seem to me that if, if, if that was a particular profession and it was, you were hated by the people in, in you know, your people... And because Matthew had, or Levi had come to salvation in Christ, it is the sort of thing that someone would do, is pray for other people in the same business to come to the Lord. And actually what that made me think was how incredible it is that, um, that Jesus had, that God goes before us in all of these things. So 
let's say that, that Levi had been praying for all the tax collectors in Israel, that actually, because in this little story, this little account of, of Zacchaeus, what we read is that Jesus looked up. He had to look up to see Zacchaeus because he was in the tree. Mm. And so Jesus must have known he was there. And so he was looking up. So I was also thinking then about all those people that we meet and all the things that happen in our daily life. Do we really live in the conscious understanding that Jesus, God, has gone before us, that he has prepared the way? So in all the conversations we might have and all the people we meet, do we really believe that God has gone before us? I know that we do sometimes. I know that when we pray specifically for it, we think, yeah, you know, we're praying for opportunities and for people. And, but in the general scheme of things, do we believe that every single person we meet, God has already been at work towards? Can I give a little example? Please. Mm. Uh, church this afternoon, two people <coughs> come in. It turns out that he's a Roman Catholic and has come to know the Lord. And I just happen to be playing a CD that has had three priests singing. <laughs> I mean, you know, you couldn't yeah. organise no, it. No, no. had to be the Lord. Yes, yes, that sort of thing. That's yeah. what I mean. And I think, well, I realised when I thought about it for me that because everyone who wants to see Jesus will see him. That's what we're shown. In the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, he wanted to see Jesus. Mm. And Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. And, and everyone who wants to see Jesus will see him. And then I thought, maybe that's a bit fanciful, but I, of course then I realised that we're told that in Scripture all over, that God set, Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 3, God set eternity in the hearts of men. He, he, he put the knowledge of eternity inside every single person. Romans chapter 1, he made himself evident in creation. And he gave the knowledge of himself inside every person. So God wants to be known. And everyone who wants to see him will see him. So that made me think then. So if he goes before me, if he's involved in every part of my life, in every way, in every conversation, in every meeting, in everything, and if, he, and if anyone even vaguely wants to see him, they, he will make himself known, then I can be absolutely sure that there is no one on the planet who will not know that God exists. And that when I'm talking to anyone, he will already have made that knowledge available to them. Now, that was quite a big thing for me, actually, to think about that. Um, maybe you do that all the time, but I don't live in the conscious knowledge of that. I don't live in that state if I pray specifically about it, then maybe, but not in my everyday, when I fill up at the petrol station with gas, when I run in to buy, you know, sourdough bread, when I, whatever it is, I don't consciously think of that. But every person and every situation, God has already gone before. And I think that was good for me, really, because... Um, you know, we know that we don't walk alone. We know that Jesus walks with us. But I think that the, the, the realisation of that is something we have to work hard at. Mm. I, th I think we do. That the choice is the two ends of the spectrum. It's the man with nothing yes. and the man with everything. Yes. And if you have faith and trust, it's for everybody. Yes, there you go. That's a good one, John. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah.
So Jesus looked up and saw Zacchaeus, and th- and then of course he looked at you. He looked up. He looked at you, and you saw him. And I mean that's amazing, isn't it? Revelation th- three verse twenty says that. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and and uh, you know anyone who opens up to me, I will go in and dine with them. And um, and so he went in as the saviour into Zacchaeus's house. Uh, amazing thing, really, that he said, today I must stay at your house. And that's what he says to us. Today I must stay at your house. I must come in and live with you and, and dine with you. And um, just just kind of so much in there, really, that we probably had, could find more in there. But it really did strike me, as I say, this last few days as I was thinking about it. Um, quite a contrast to the rich young ruler that we looked at just a little while ago in, in who was asked to give away all of his possessions and didn't want to, and went away sad because... So this understanding, too, that everyone uh, will have a knowledge of God, no one will die without knowing that God existed. No one. And so the understanding that, that people deliberately choose no to Jesus. They deliberately say no to Jesus. They're not always conscious of that every moment of their life, but at one stage or another in everyone's life, they will have the opportunity to ask God, Jesus, for sight, to ask him for for what they need. And if they don't ask, that's their choice. So it's not because they won't have had the opportunity. You know, we always hear that don't we well what about the person who's never heard of Jesus there's no person who's never heard of Jesus there's people who who might say well I've never heard the name Jesus but they will have heard that God exists they will have known that God exists and and if they take that thought even one half of a step further they will know that they can't get to him he has to come to them um so Zacchaeus was saved, and the transformation in him me- meant that he um, he offered to pay back anyone he defrauded. Uh, he wasn't saved because he did that. He was saved before he did that. But uh, his his faith was shown in what he did, and that's what I think Jesus is going to go into now. Um, that your faith is evidenced by your obedience. We've already talked about it. He's already talked about that, but. Um, in James, you know, in James, the letter, uh, Jesus' half-brother who wrote James, um, uh, he's, he says in chapter 2, um, he, he actually makes it clear. And, you know, a lot of people don't like the letter, to, the letter of James because they, um, they don't like the, the fact that James says, faith without works is dead. It's dead. In fact, Martin Luther wanted it taken out of the canon of Scripture because he couldn't bear it. Yeah, he didn't. He thought that James shouldn't be in the Bible because it was an, a kind of an abomination to him that uh, James was saying you have you have to have works to your faith. And um, and if you read chapter two, verse fourteen to two twenty six. Um, This is what James says. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I mean, it's a pretty strong statement. And, um, and what James is saying is, it's easy to understand what he's saying. If, if, you don't, if your behavior does not reflect what you say you believe, then what you say you believe, that's not true. You don't believe it. Faith without works is dead. And so um, Jesus has been saying that, hasn't he? He's been saying that obedience is the same as faith, really. Obedience comes out of faith that if you truly believe or trust Jesus, you will find that you obey what he says. Because if you trust that he's God, why would you not do what he says? It's a, you know, what we call a no-brainer. So um, saving faith is more than feelings. It's more than, um, uh, it's more than believing certain words in the Bible. I mean, you can think that the whole Bible is true. You can read it and agree with everything it says. But if you don't put it into action, then you don't believe. Not in the way that the Bible talks about faith. You may, as I say, you may know that it's right. You may see that it's moral. You may see that it's ethical. You may, you may even stand and say, well, I think that the Bible is in a wonderful book and we should all do what it says. But if you don't do what it says, you, you don't have faith. Um, and, um, yeah, and so uh, um, what, what I think Jesus is going to go on to more now because we're just being, we've been shown by Luke that Zacchaeus had this huge transformation and actually did what he what he said he believed he actually gave back the money etc etc and now jesus is going to go into a parable about um that kind not exactly that but um about how people who truly understand who god is actually behave and so um so could someone read verse 11 of chapter 19 uh, let's see, we'll go to um, verse 28, please. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then returned. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minutes and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered these slaves to whom he'd given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your minna has made ten minas more. 
he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, your minor, master, has made five minds. He said to them also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, master, here is your minor, which I kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you didn't lay down and reap what you did not sow. I said to him, by your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping, what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to the bystanders, Take the miner away from him, and give it to the one who has ten miners. And they said to him, Master, he has ten miners already. I tell you that everyone who has more than he has given, but the one who does not have even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. And actually, it's quite an interesting thing when you think, when you've just come off the back of Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler who wouldn't, um, wouldn't do what Jesus asked. Um, before we actually look at the parable itself, um, what was Jesus... You remember when the rich young ruler turned away and walked away and the disciples... I mean, they just couldn't understand it. They, they said, hey, Jesus said, it's a very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were um, questioning that. And then Peter said, look, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus said, you're going to receive much more in this, in this world and in the age to come. And we talked last week about the fact that there would be, uh, every we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that there was a family that you all moved into. Um, and and I kind of is, I had some questions about that, which I, I think I probably asked last time. But you know, what Jesus is talking to, to them about, and what he's actually going to continue talking about here is, where are your values, and what are they based on? So, um, you know, what have you built your life on? What's important to you? What, if you lost it? what would absolutely shake you to the core of your being. And um, because what's happening to Zacchaeus, what's happening to Bartimaeus, the blind man, what's happening to the disciples, what's happening to everyone who is following Jesus is that they're making a decision that what is important to Jesus will be important to them. The rich young ruler, on the other hand, didn't. He heard Jesus say, sell your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me. And he could not make that choice. It was too much for him because he valued what he had too much to let it go. And, and really, that's the question that we're each of us faced with. Will we decide that, that even if it's all good stuff, it's not as important as Jesus and as his will? And the thing is, we nod and we say we do, and we, we understand the words, but our lifestyles often show the lie to that. And it's not, you know, it's not necessary to think we've got to give away our money, or we've got to do this, or we've got to do that, whatever. It's simply, will you spend 
time with the Lord and ask him, what is it, Lord, that you want me to do? And what is it that's important for my life? And, and am I putting my values, my foundation on things that are not what you would want? And I re- that's a challenge, really, to you. I'm challenged by it myself. Uh, and it's a challenge for all of us because, because us seeing Jesus, which we all say we have done, we've believed in Jesus, which means we've seen him, we've understood who he is, that's forcing us into a situation to make a choice. Because, as we've just said, it's not enough just to say, I've seen Jesus, I've believed in him, if the way that we then go and live our life doesn't change because of what we've seen. And although this next parable is kind of slightly uh, difficult to understand in terms of that, I do think Jesus is showing us something very similar. Um, Our actions always express our true values. It it doesn't matter, even if we're not aware of it, not conscious of it, what we do always shows what we believe. How we are with other people shows how we value them and ultimately shows how much we value Christ. How we are with, with people that we consider worse than us, better than us, whatever way that is, it shows what we consider about Jesus. What we choose to do with our time, with our money, um, shows what we think about Jesus. And I'm not going any which way in that, because there'll always be rich people and there'll always be poor people. And Jesus said in James, you know, if you're rich, you're just rich, don't worry about it. And if you're poor, you're poor, don't worry about it. It's not necessary for you to change your particular station or your particular finances that may not be what God is calling you to do but your choice for Jesus will call you for some sort of commitment and do you know what that is and have you made that commitment because it's possible to live your whole life not making it and I think this next parable really tells us what will happen to the people who don't make the commitment um Uh, Not even the risk of faith. I would say it's the obedience, actually, Carol. I would say the whole Bible calls us to pray unceasingly. Keep praying. Keep coming to the Lord. Surrender to him. Romans chapter 12 says, you know, uh, um, submit your, what's the word? Surrender your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. All all of your humanity, surrender to God. Because if you truly know what it's cost to bring you salvation, then the least you can do is give him the rest of your life. And so I would call that obedience rather than a risk. I don't think there's a risk in doing that. Oh, right. So that's what we're getting onto. Yeah. And he didn't, he wouldn't make it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's what I think, that's where Jesus is taking us with this. So, um, let's think about that. What um, It says in verse 11, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. So while they were listening to what was happening with Zacchaeus and Jesus and all of that whole thing unraveling in front of them, he goes on to tell them a parable. And he says, because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So 
you know straight away that Jesus is talking to Jews in the context of the kingdom of God, which they expected physically to come on earth. So first of all, this parable is about the Jews. Yes, we can take principles from it, but first of all, it's about the Jews and about Israel. Um, so uh, he tells this story, and it involves three different classes of people. So um, three different types of people. How would you divide the people? Yeah, actually it's not that, because they were given what they had. So what, what's the first... He says, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. So without trying to interpret what he means and everything, you know, he calls his slaves, ten slaves, and then later he calls them servants, um, and and gave them ten miners and said to them, do business with this until I come back. That's where the words occupy until I come comes from. Uh, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. So immediately we've got his slaves or his servants and the citizens who are his enemies. They don't want him to come back at all. But then within the slaves, there are two groups. What are the two groups? His citizens refers to the Jews, right? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, So... Within those two, within the group of slaves, there are two groups. What are they? What, how would you divide those? There's only two, there's two, there's one division between them. Two of them have got enterprise and they, um, they see an opportunity to make more money. And the other one is scared and frightened. Yeah, well, actually, Jesus uses the word faithful. So two of them are faithful and one of them is not. And so you can divide these, these slaves into two groups. One of them are working or faithful, and the other, are non, the other one is non-working and not faithful. Um, why is the, the one not working? Why is he not faithful? What do you know about him? Yes, he's afraid. Why is he afraid? He doesn't Well, he doesn't believe he can make any money, but he's... He doesn't know God. He's afraid. And actually what he says about the master, you know, we wouldn't attribute to God. I know that you, you know, you're an exacting man. You take up what you don't lay down and reap what you did not sow. That's not a description of the God we know. So in this parable, though, what this is saying is I know that you, um, you know, that or not knowing who his master is and that the fact that his master would uh, necessarily reward his servants for doing what they did. Yeah, in a way he was. So he um, he wrapped up the coin that he had and he and he kept it under his bed or did whatever he did. And then when the master came back, um, what was what was the consequence of what they had done? So what was the consequence for the one who had the ten had made ten miners out of one? Yeah, he was giving. He was given. To, he was rewarded. What about the second one? He was rewarded. What about the one who didn't do anything with the money? Yeah, he had to give that away, but he did, he wasn't rewarded. What happened to, to the enemies? They were killed. So the one who didn't do anything with the talent or with the miner, um, 
was he thrown away with the wicked and the enemies? No. He wasn't rewarded. So think about this. They're talking, they're thinking that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's going to set up the millennial kingdom. He's going to set up the kingdom of God on earth. And that, that's what he's talking to them about. And what he's saying is, I'm going away. And while I'm away, I'm going to leave you with something. And I want you to make that into more. And if you make it into more, you, there will be a reward when I come back. The enemies of me who don't want me to come back, they're all going to get slain anyway. But there's a possibility that you're going to take this thing and you're not going to do anything with it. Mm. So um, before we get any further, what is the thing that he has entrusted us with? The people he's left behind to, to occupy until he comes. What have we been left with? What were those disciples, those first well, disciples with? Yeah, but so what were they given to do that? What does the minor? Yes, it's the word of God. It's the yeah, the gospel, or I, I think the complete word of God actually, but definitely the gospel. And and how would you say those first eleven, twelve disciples did with that? They did really well with it. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and three thousand believed because he preached the word. 3,000 people. And then in, in a very short time, 5,000 believed. So there was this multiplication. What do you know will happen when Jesus comes back? What will Peter expect, according to this parable? He'll expect to be ruling and have authority over a lot of cities in Israel. And that's exactly what will happen. So for us then, for us, what do you think this parable is showing us? And let's just cross... We're not thinking about the physical kingdom, we're thinking about a spiritual kingdom at the moment and we are occupying that until he comes. What's our responsibility? What's been entrusted to us? Yes, the word of God has been entrusted to us. Um, and so um, what do you think Jesus wants us to know about our responsibility with the word of God? What, what is your responsibility with the word of God? To spread, to spread it. Well, how are you going to spread the word of God? You're going to go out into the world. And what, when you go out into the world, what are you going to have to know? Yeah, you're going to have to know the word of God, but also what? Because if you go out, you're going to have to know Jesus. Because if you go out into the world like these servants did, and you're going to be frightened of not doing the right thing because you don't know God and you don't know Jesus, you are not going to be very easily sharing this word. And actually, what you're going to do is wrap it up and keep it at home. And actually not do that. You're not going to share the word. And what's going to happen if you don't share the word? When he does return, there is going to be no reward for you when you face him, whichever it is first, whether he, we meet him in the air, whenever that is, and he, you stand before him at the beamer seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, and he asks you, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do in the body of Christ? What's going to be your answer? That's what I mean about leading up to where are your values, what's important to you, what, where do you spend your time, you know, how, how much time do you give to the word of God, how much time do you give to it thinking this is what I've been entrusted with. And this is not the Holy Spirit, we all get the Holy Spirit, we all get the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not 
you're not in, in fact, in so, you're not entrusted or to, and told to guard the Holy Spirit. You're entrusted with the word of God and told to guard that because it's through the word of God that people receive salvation. Um, so the, the question is really, first of all, do you see yourself as a slave or a servant of Christ? Mm. And do you live like a servant? You know, and, and when we look at the church that we inhabit, the, the professing church, do we see a, a body that lives like this servant, these servants? And so what's our role in that then? Because it is sad. So what's our role? What would we do? What would we say to the, those servants who, who don't know Jesus and who've picked up this word of God and they've put it in their pocket and they're, they're scared to do anything with it and they're scared that Jesus is going to come back soon, and they don't want him to come back soon, because if he does, I know I haven't done anything with what I'm supposed to do. So what would we do with those people? Encourage them, disciple them, talk to them, help them to see Jesus. That's the thing. So actually, we need to know Jesus. That needs to be the first thing. We need to know Jesus through his word. We need to know his word. And then we need to be unafraid of making a mistake because what God he's saying here is I was afraid that this servant says I was afraid because you're an exacting man and I, I was afraid that I wouldn't have I wouldn't make anything with what you gave me. So I put it away so I didn't lose it. But what is what does God say about his word and us as believers? Go out. Yeah, go out. But what else? Yes, but what else? It's, it's the power of God unto salvation. You cannot fail with the word of God. You cannot fail with it. They made extra minors with it. You cannot fail with this word. So if you're afraid, you're afraid because you don't understand you can't fail. And if you're afraid, you're afraid because you don't know the God who's given you this word. And if you're afraid, you're going to live your life in fear of not being enough and not doing enough when all the time God has given you what is going to be, mass- which will be successful. Mm. Could you equate the minus with the, um, with the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit? No, I don't think so, Simon. I don't think so because we can't multiply those. That We no. can't make them more. That's only... I think it's definitely the Word of God. I think there's some references to... Um, You've reminded me, actually. I had some references. Second Timothy. Um, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Um, let me just find the other references. Um, why can't I find them now? Second uh, Timothy, he says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Um, uh, yeah, I knew you would ask that, Anne. Hold on. Let me tell you. No, no, it's fine. I've got it here. I don't know why, I'm, why I can't see it. Um, I do. It's at the end of Second Timothy, but I, let me just go there. It might be quicker than finding it in my notes. Um, yeah, that's true. We should. Um, yeah, verse ch- uh, chapter six, verse twenty. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is called knowledge. Um, if you go to chapter one. Back to chapter 1. 
chapter 6, verse 20. Oh, that's 1 Timothy, I'm sorry. First Timothy. Yeah, yeah, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20. Yeah, and then go back to chapter 1, um, uh, verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So there's this idea that we have been entrusted with the word of God and we are to guard it as a treasure. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. There is another reference that I had, but I can't find it here now. So, um, uh, yeah, but you see, the thing is, you know, what does it cost you to um, do nothing with, the, with the, the thing that God has entrusted you with? What does it cost you as his servant? I mean, because this, this last servant was a believer in our frame as we move it. Mm. He was a believer. He was called a servant. He wasn't called an enemy. So he's called a servant. So he is a believer, but he's not doing anything with what's been entrusted to him. And there are millions of Christians like that. So, you know, how was he living through his life while his, while his master was away? He's living in fear. Yeah. He's living nervously. He's living without peace. He's living without satisfaction. He's living without fulfillment. Now, how many Christians do you know like that? Because they know, instinctively, they know, because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within them, that they're not living the life they could be living. And it's not necessarily that they're sinning. It's that they know they haven't committed fully to knowing this God, and therefore they are not receiving god will not give us peace and joy and all of the other stuff if we are not living lives that are committed to him why would he because he wants us to commit to him so he's not going to make it easy for us not to commit he's going to make it difficult and um and the thing is at the end of your life when you get to the end it's going to cost you your reward <coughs> excuse me and that's going to bother you we can't get our head around rewards very easily. It's difficult because somehow we have something against getting rewards. But when you think about you're going to give them back to Jesus, then you understand how disappointed and how ashamed you're going to be when you see him. And that's what he's talking about. And Jesus has left us here with his word that's been entrusted to us. And it's not the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit we wouldn't even be entrusted with the word. We've been entrusted with the word because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And, um, and he's, he's left us here with his word to build his church. That's, that's what his word does. It builds his church. The gospel brings someone into salvation and then the word of God grows them up and they become living stones put together to build the church. Um, No, no. But I think a lot of the time, Anne, it's not necessarily that we don't want to do some of this stuff. It's that we are afraid. And here, what Jesus is saying is, actually, we're afraid of God. And that is a massive thing, isn't it? 
And I, but I think there are many, many Christians who are actually afraid of God. All can be afraid of man. I, mean, I have a perfect example from last week, which literally I've been repeating to Bishop. Oh, so easy. <laughs> so easy just to think, gracious, I really have to guard this. But actually, you don't. Yeah, fear of man, yeah. I think that's common too. But I think in this parable, he's talking yeah. about fear of God. I knew you were an exacting man. And that frightens me more somehow. I think, mm. I think we can get over fear of man. We can be trained, we can build, be built up by the Holy Spirit, we can come together, pray for one another, do those things. But there's nowhere to go if we have a fear of God. Yeah. It's because we don't know him. That's exactly it. No. If you read his word and you and you see the character of God, yes, just so loving. Yes, I know. But when you talk to people who haven't studied, or they haven't read the word very much, one of the first things people say to you is, "I'm a bit afraid to get too far into this. I'm afraid of what God might ask me to do. I'm afraid of what God might ask me to give up." I'm afraid that, you know, all sorts of things. And, and actually, that's the same thing as being afraid of God. And you're afraid of God because you don't understand that what he asks you to do will be the one thing that you love doing. Yeah. Exactly. It will bring you the greatest blessing. But until you know that, until you put your foot in the pond, as it were, and test the water, you don't know it. And so you build up, build up, build up this barrier between you and God, the very one who is calling you closer and the only one who can do anything about you having fulfillment and satisfaction in your life. And I think that's what this parable is talking about. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand that he's going away a nobleman went back to a distant country to receive a kingdom. And while he was away, he left his servants with the word or things, money, to invest for him. And if they had invested it, if they had understood that he was coming back, that he, that he was good, that he was kind, and that there was a reward, they would have rushed to do what he wanted them to do. Yeah, harsh. yeah, that's not God. So, but obviously, this servant didn't understand yeah, his understand master. Right. Yes, Actually, yes. Don't understand the true nature of God. Do see God as being exacting and harsh. Yeah. That's, it's misunderstanding. Think about all the. Yeah. Think about the religions of the world, mm. and think about how what most of them are based on. Most religions are based on fear. Um, fear of the God that you are seeking to please. Roman Catholicism is built on fear. Uh, Islam is built on fear. Hinduism, Buddhism, not so much, but, um, but many, many religions. Jehovah's Witnesses, the cult, Mormonism, ultimately it's based on fear. If you don't do certain things you're in trouble. They're all based on fear. And that fear promotes a, an image of God that is completely untrue. And, and that's what we're fighting against all the time. And if we don't live as if we know a loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving God, if we are afraid to go out with 
the thing he's called us to do, we are giving out the impression that our God is something to be, is someone to be scared of. Mm-hmm. Because we're living scared. Yeah. Yeah. They obviously don't know their master. No, yeah. that's they it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they knew him. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. An interesting thing is there are two stories here, aren't there, in this parable? And uh, we've been concentrating on the main story. Yeah, yeah. But there is another story. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how it um, starts at the beginning and ends at the end. Yes. And in the middle, there's a story. Yes. It is. It is. Uh, his citizens hated him, you mean, and sent out a delegation after him. Yeah, and then then they get slain. Yeah. Yes. 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 I think that that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was just yet another picture of the final judgment that they would go through. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think it's about the final judgment because he's gone to receive a kingdom and he's going to come back. Yes. Oh yeah, remnant. yeah. Only the remnant will be yeah, saved. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. But yes, as you say, it's encased in that story actually, yeah. and and that's why I think really it's a parable totally for Israel. We can take certain things from it and understand this idea of occupying, doing business until he comes, but. Uh, it is about Israel, and it and it's and it's for Jesus because he's going to ride into Jerusalem mm-hmm. now. Yeah, from verse twenty-eight onwards, we're going to read about him going into Jerusalem, and he's going to weep over Jerusalem yes, yes. because they're going to reject him. Yes. And so he's 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 saying this to all those people who are listening, all those who've just seen Zacche- Zacche- Zacchaeus completely transformed. He's saying that to all these people. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. So he's, he's trying to get them to understand some things about who he is. And as, he, as we get to verse 28, where he's, we're going to read to the um, end of the chapter, what's going to happen is, up until this time, he's been talking to individual Jews about who he is and offering everyone the possibility of believing that he's Messiah. But, and he's been telling people, don't tell people who I am. Over and over again, he said, go away and don't, don't tell anybody. But now he's going to ride into Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be the Messiah. He's going to ride in on a donkey, which is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, I think it is. He's, he's, he's going to arrive on a, on a colt. And so um, he's going to proclaim to everyone, here I am Messiah, because he knows he's shortly going away. Um, the parable where he was near exactly yes yeah, yeah. On the yes. yes it is it's yeah. all building up to what is the focal the focus of all time the crucifixion of jesus mm-hmm. i mean it's just the most i don't know terrible and amazing thing that the whole of human history focuses on this one yes. moment or one time Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And I think really when you think about it, 
if we don't want to be living for Jesus until he comes, then we have, have we really understood the cost to him? We're going to talk about that next week. The cost to him of our salvation. And, and are we really, if we aren't prepared to surrender everything, then do we really believe that we're going to face him and be ashamed? I wonder about that, actually. And it's not just in our day. Paul wrote letters, didn't he, to Corinth. I mean, you can't even imagine a church like that. You know, they were in all sorts of sin. And he's still writing to them as believers. So it's possible to be a believer, but still to live a completely uh, unsurrendered life. And if you do, not only will you not have any peace and joy and everything in this life, you'll have no satisfaction, no fulfillment, no purpose or meaning to your life. And then one day you will stand before Christ and be ashamed. It is terrible. It is. It is when you understand the reality that we are in a no-lose situation. We cannot lose. We cannot fail. That God makes it possible for you and for me to multiply the gift that we've been left with. The, the word. I know. No. So how important it is that we really believe it and that we pass this on. You can't fail. It's impossible to fail in the Christian life. If you surrender to the Lord Jesus, he will enable you to do what he has called you to do. We, I've just said God goes before you. He goes beside you. He is within you. He has gifted you with his spirit. He has, he has enabled you with all sorts of things to do what he's calling you to do. He's given you his word. And he said, my word never returns void without accomplishing the purpose for which I sent it. So why on earth would we not speak it? Yes. Believing that, why would we not speak it? And it's because we don't know God well enough. And if we knew him better we would do it. Laziness, yeah. But even that I would put down to unbelief, Carol. We don't know God well enough. If we I mean, really, we're not talking about the love that we have for one another. We're not even talking about the most fabulous marriage that ever existed where two people loved each other to absolute distraction and, and were constantly devoted for each other. We're talking about a love we cannot measure. We're talking about the immeasurable love of God for us that came to us in Christ. How could we understand that or even glimpse that and still say, no, I don't think I want to do that. I don't think I want to share that with anyone else. I, I just think it shows that we don't understand. We don't understand the power that's at work within us and towards us. We don't understand the grace of God that has just covered us and promised that, that we're being kept, we're being guarded, we're being watched over, we're being empowered every moment. We have, we're being given opportunities and we have, we have his love within us pouring out through us. We have this river of living water flowing in and through us. How can we know all of that and not surrender and put it into practice? Yeah, how can we? And if, we, if we're not putting it into practice, that's his point. If you're not doing what you know, it means you don't believe something. You don't believe something. This is where faith and works. And works, exactly. That's exactly it. Faith and works. 
So let's just move on then, because he's going to ride into Jerusalem. We'll, get, we'll take him, go with him into Jerusalem. So could someone read from verse 28 through to 44, please? When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mouth that is called Olivet, he sent to the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a coat, tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the coat? And they said, The Lord has need of it. So they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the coat, and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will fire. Mm -hmm. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you would have known, in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up barricade against you, and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, and your children will be you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Thank you. Okay, so now I definitely think he's talking about the, um, the uh, destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, but as you follow this through, you see really that he's continuing his uh, explanation or his unveiling of who he is and the understanding that we must all make a choice. He's been talking about that all the way through Luke's Gospel. You have to make a choice. And um, if you have believed, put your trust in Jesus. That's your choice. But then also you have a choice now of how committed you will be to him. And, um, and the thing is, discipleship costs. It does. It costs. But it will cost if you don't do it. It costs if you do it, and it costs if you don't. And, and what he's saying is you, you'll reap such wonderful blessing and reward if you do do as he says, and you won't um, if you don't. And he's actually saying the same thing as he's going into Jerusalem. He's giving the whole nation the opportunity to choose him to submit to him, actually, and surrender to him, because that's what it will mean. And what you see is, um, it says, 
when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount, which is called Olivet, he sent the two disciples. So go and get this cult. It was obviously he had to go into Jerusalem in the way it was foretold. Zechariah 9, uh, verse 9 and 10, talk about the way he will go into Jerusalem. And as he goes in, they're going to lay the palm branches down. And, and his whole crowd of disciples, it says, they're going to be... Um, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They totally understood who the crowd were calling Jesus. They knew that he, they were saying, he, Here's the Messiah. And these Pharisees did not want it. They did not want to, um, to accept Jesus as Messiah. Um, and Yes, I know, I know. I think they were blinded, but I actually think at this stage, what we're seeing is that actually there are always going to be people who don't want God. And and that's yes, they had more information than other people, and they they were able to recognise exactly who he was declaring himself to be, but they didn't want him. And I, he he said they were wrong. He said that they were hypocrites, and he was saying you're not supposed to write like that. This is not the way that you're going to get to him. No, but the thing is, they knew who oh, he was saying he was. Right, yeah, and so th there isn't this, you know, sometimes you can think, well, they didn't know. They didn't know, you know, and so I think some people will end up facing God and saying, well, I didn't know, you didn't tell me, you know. You just didn't tell me. But the reality is every single person is making their own choice. So here we've got the national. I mean, he's going into, he's entering Jerusalem as Messiah. That's what he's doing. And the chief priests and the scribes, they don't want him. He's actually going to go into the temple and teach there for several days. He's going to clean out the temple. We won't do it tonight, but he's going to, in verse 45, enter the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. This is the second time he's done that. He did that once before. John chapter 2 records it. So, um, so he's declaring himself to be God. He's done miracles. He's taught them. He's given parables. He's, done, he's instructed them in ways they could never have had before. Every, you know, Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know that you must have come from God right back in the beginning because of what you're doing. They recognized that here was a teacher they hadn't heard before. He was teaching with authority, even at 12 years old, when he went into the temple. They recognized and were amazed at his teaching. No, but he was the first person to do and say what yeah, he was doing and saying. And they and knew he was different. Yes. You don't hear about, you don't hear about, or very much, about um, the ones that came before. No. They're recorded in some of the yeah. Roman um, literature, but they, but they weren't crucified. No. They weren't no. No. Treated like Jesus. Was. Exactly. They knew who they were rejecting, and that's why mm. the, um, 
He's weeping over them. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. It's not that you didn't see me, see that I was Messiah. It's that you refused to see me. You didn't want to see Jesus. And that's what I really think is important for us to understand. That it's not that people can't believe. It's that they won't. They won't believe. Um, They don't want their life to change. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. Yes. 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 But think about that then, because <laughs> think about that now with believers who don't want their lives to change. Yes. Who who hold on to the minor mina that they were given and hide it under their bed because they're afraid. They don't know God enough. They're afraid of what He's going to ask them to do. They're Uh, And they just decide this life's more important than whatever I have to face afterwards. And I've got my ticket, so I'm in. Yeah, but do they truly believe? Well, I think you have to say that they do according to this parable. You'd have to say that they did. They're not the ones, the enemies who are slain. They are, he's still called a servant. See, I don't know how you can truly, truly believe that Jesus is Lord and that the Bible's true and that you're going to heaven and you don't follow what it says. Hmm. I just don't understand it. I'm no. sorry. I just don't understand it. No. Because it's so clear and why wouldn't you want to please Jesus? Well, I think there's a first of all, there's a huge number of uh, Christians who are never discipled. They're never yeah, told to go into the Word of God. Yeah, They're never really they walk up in a church or they go to a church, they, they pray to receive the Lord. It's all wonderful, hallelujah. They go out on mission trips, they do all sorts of stuff, but they never really know God because they're never discipled. Sort of a testament to how badly our church is. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was so blessed, and this must have been God. I was so blessed because I met them. I went to a church, and it was an FIEC church, so it was quite a strict church. But there was so much love there, and I was the only Christian in um, my family, and I'd had a terrible time because, of course, my Catholic family, and yet I was taken under the wing of the most wonderful woman who taught me so much about the love of God and so much about the Bible, and it just really set my feet. Yes, well, I would say, but that's unusual. It's not the common thing. And that's what we're, you know, and that's why, that's why, that's why I do what I do. That's why you're here. You're here because you have heard a call from God to know more about him. And that call is not just that you know more about him, it's that you tell other people more about him. And so that's why I'm always saying, take the cards, give them away, bring people along. Because I know God speaks through his word and I know that people will hear him and and of course there'll be some people who still make the choice yeah. I don't really think I'm quite comfortable where I am there'll always be those people and they they may well be believers but that's not our role our role our command actually is to make more with what we've been given mm. we've been given the word of God so now understand it read it study it share it Share it. And if you say you really love people and you really care about people, then you would want to share this first. But it's also telling them 
not to only share it with people that don't yet know you. Oh, of course, share, share it within with the church, exactly. Within the church, yeah. having had the, exactly. the advantages that we've had, yeah. like learning exactly. the exactly. meaning of the Bible. opportunity coming up, too. And that is, I was in Mammoth Palace, I was with Justin, and you know, there's no question that the Church of England Falling apart. apart. Oh. Definitely. I, mean, I, I, I think a lot of the yeah, definitely. I mean, there are one or two examples, of course, yeah. but generally speaking, definitely, it is falling, and as it falls to bits, then we'll have great opportunity yeah. of speaking to those people. I, I, I think actually, at the moment, and most denominations are struggling because no, no, we're no. fighting a culture that is absolutely opposed <laughs> to Christ. And so it's and easier easy it's easier to take the easy route. Yeah. But the thing is, what we need to be doing is to be showing them that it yeah. looks easier, but actually yeah. it's a road full of potholes. Yeah. You need to be on this road, which may look harder at the start, yeah. but actually will be such a glorious yeah. walk. Um, and that's our responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I came through a church split. And that was, you know, they would have called themselves, they were evangelical Christians. It's possible. These things are always possible. And our job really is to, is to love and to care for the people inside those churches and to be there and talk to them about the love of God and the love of Christ and to draw them back through his word. And I don't know how that's going to look. I don't know what the church, the organized church, is going to look like in 10 years' time. Our world is changing so fast. I mean, who could possibly know what it's going to be like but in the ten love years? Of God doesn't, doesn't mean compromise. No, I'm talking about the real yeah. love of God. Yeah, because I mean, they talk about oh, you've got to love everybody and you've got to accept everybody. Yes, you have. But they they then are saying or almost saying there is no such thing as sin. Yeah. And that everybody is acceptable. Well, the thing is, the reason they're saying that is that they don't know God. Yeah. Yeah. Th that's the thing. It's not that most of the people who are mouthing that stuff, it's not that they, they want to sin. It's that they don't even know what sin is because they don't know God and they don't know the word. So our responsibility is doubled. Every day it's almost doubled because people are more and more ignorant of who God is. They haven't read their Bible, which says that we mustn't accept the culture of this I know. Life, that we've got to live pure <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. But and how will they... But how will they do that? Well, we have to tell them. Exactly. That's my point. That's my point. We have to, we have to tell them. But, but can you imagine, you know, I mean, what you're going to do? You're going to walk into the church building and say, right, well, I mean, I've been studying my Bible and I know what it means and I know what it says. And actually, you're in real trouble because you're not doing the right thing. So, yes. So, but, but that's, yes. No. No. It doesn't draw people to Jesus. No, it doesn't. And this is the tragedy because you could have the flip side of this, but there's so much finger pointing that instead of drawing people to Jesus, they're making people close the door against the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is tragic, and the Lord really weeps over it. Yeah, I think, I think it's a tricky one mm. because. because 
Exactly. We, exactly. But I think that's the whole point of that is Jesus is described in John chapter 1 and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, if we profess to know Jesus and he is transforming us into his image by his spirit, we must be growing in both grace and truth. If you have only one, you're in desperate trouble. I think we have a church that has only grace, is, is, is showing only yeah. grace. Not all the time, but mostly. And, and, and they, they're very minus on the, on the truth. Yeah. But, it, but I don't know how. I mean, I, I do know how to, to do it. Is we have to be speaking the truth and living the truth yes. and caring about those people. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just been all over the Telegraph the story of jo- Jonathan Fletcher, yeah. um, who is... He yeah. was the you know, minister at uh, Emmanuel Church in Wimbledon. Yeah. Absolutely despicable yeah. um, behavior, if it's true, and I believe it is. Yeah. Um, friends with all sorts of people in high places in the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is a disgrace. Yes. But there are still people going into that building with a different minister looking for God. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to be there. Because if we're not there, who's going to be there? So I don't know how we're going to do it, but we have to do it. And we have to do it with grace and with truth. So, you know, even if it means that your Sundays are taken up with mission in terms of going into buildings where they don't, where they've got the the cross on the door, but they don't know Jesus. So that's where you go to do your mission work, your evangelism. And then you meet as a fellowship somewhere else during the week, and that's your church. I don't know how you do it, but that's what we have to do. We have to now, because people are going into church buildings looking for God. We have to be there. Exactly. So we have to be there. The only way I think that we can do it is by showing by our lives, and that's not easy, that the Jesus we believe in and the Jesus we follow gives a life in fullness, even when the going gets tough. Yeah, I think it's a spoken, yeah, but we, so we have to live it and speak it. But I really think, honestly, I really think that um, in the days we live in, the buildings called church, at whichever denomination, whoever's in there, that's our mission field. That is the biggest mission field we're on. Unless God sends you somewhere else to another country, that's your mission field. Now, maybe you've got to go there on Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Sunday afternoon, and you've just got to go and be a member of that congregation and talk about the Lord and talk about the Word and try to bring them to to Desiring Truth or to some other Bible study or try to sit with them and, and, and pray with them and go through some Scripture together and then have your fellowship, your church, at another time. It would be interesting to know what um, John Wesley would have said about the minister here. Yeah, no. Um, He's now insisting, his his name is James Taylor, he's now insisting on being called Jane. In this time. In this time, yeah. I'm just saying, but this is Methodist, this is a Methodist. In the Methodist church. In the Methodist church. But you you, you imagine what John Wesley, it would be interesting to know how he would approach him, her, you know? I I uh, I think though Simon yeah, actually it would be yes but I, actually what I think is yeah. we have been entrusted 
with an amazing ministry yeah. because John Wesley never faced what we're facing. Yeah, true, true. He faced yeah. drunkenness. But and I was thinking yeah. myself. Yeah, how would he, would he, what would he say? Yeah, I don't know. I don't you know. You probably hadn't faced that, you're right. Yeah. No, but what I, I suppose what no. I mean is he probably faced his own things. No, but I think that yeah. we have yeah. to be praying on our yeah. knees all the time. Yeah. Lord, how will we minister to yeah, these people? True. How will you minister to this Methodist yeah. minister? So you know, how will we do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know. Maybe there'll come a day when we when we're persecuted so much because we're, you know, when we're going to be reported to every bishop in town because we're doing whatever we're doing. I don't know. Yeah. And that might be a time when we are to be, when we're obviously seen to be separate. Mm -hmm. But... This isn't about Ebola. At no. all. It isn't, you see. This is where I disagree. There's a phenomenal opportunity to, to preach the gospel to people who come in. I mean, it is just whether it's little children grown-ups. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. But I didn't do right. I didn't do right. I felt I just went over the mark. And this is what I mean, is we need to be so attentive to the Holy Spirit. Yes, definitely. I should have said, but I should have kept silent. Mm. I don't know what you said, Eve, so no, no it's fine. Well, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. We have to be careful, yes. Right. All right. You know, we really need to be careful how we draw people to the Lord, the head of the Spirit, and genuinely that way. Don't just say that. No, I agree. I mean, I totally agree. I meant, uh, if I think I said preach, the, no, no, no. no, no, no she said oh, ah. Share it, yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. 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 Definitely, and the way we speak, definitely, yeah. yeah. I was reading about that this morning, about, about guarding your words and being really, really thinking and, and, and actually really getting on your knees to make sure that, that you are saying what God is telling you yeah. to say and not, that, yeah. and not putting your own yeah. spin on it. I also think, though, Eve, that um, I also yeah, think that it's very easy to be misunderstood when yeah. we speak the truth. So I don't know your individual experience with if you know that you went too far because the Lord's shown you that, that's, that, that's obviously what he's shown you. But No, no. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think, just to finish off, I do think... Um, well, I, actually, it doesn't matter what I think. I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say... No, I think... I, <laughs> I think, I think... Uh, I, I think I do think it's important for us to consider the uh, organized church, the professing church, as our mission field. Yes. Yeah. I definitely do. And I think that we have to be there to make a difference. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that... I think that's our mission, our ministry. Um, I think we need outside fellowship. That can't be your church. No. Because you, you need to fellowship with other believers. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, you do. You do. We need. We need to be built up with one yeah, another. I think it's so hard now, um, and and it's it's an awkward battle that we do need to be amongst people who are help, holding us up and yeah, of course us we do. Each other. Yeah. And actually are encouraging us. Yeah, we do. Can, sometimes you feel as if you're banging your head against the yeah. wall. Yeah. And, and then they start throwing accusations at you. Yeah. And it's not the way. You've meant it at all. <laughs> I think the thing is, I think the thing is. Yeah. So, what we've seen so far in Luke then is that faith promotes obedience. True faith brings obedience. Obedience brings more trust and a certainty in the reality of Christ and the reality of who God is. And then that certainty enables us to persevere when the going gets tough we keep persevering because we have the certainty that he really is who he says he is and and our obedience is just multiplied as we go through and really that's the the thing that i think he's been showing us and he's weeping over those people who won't receive him and and really you know that's for us isn't it do we weep over those people who won't receive and i, I suppose the questions i've just got a couple of questions at the end uh, are you continuing in the work that he created in advance for you to do? Are you doing what he left you here to do? You know, he, he says he gave his slaves these mi this minor and said them told them to occupy until he came. Are you occupying until he comes? And uh, do you know him better today than you did last year? Do you know Jesus better today than you did last year? And are you witnessing to him whilst you're here? I don't mean here, but I mean generally here on the planet. Are you witnessing to Jesus? And are you using his word to do that? Because it's his word that has the power. Um, and um, are you being faithful in the small things? Because it's the small things that are the things that he inhabits. Those things that we perhaps wouldn't give too much attention to, he's really interested in. Um, yeah, Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord. It's, it's such a difficult one because we live in such a difficult time with regard to the church, Lord. We, um, we're often calling places the church when really there are very few believers in the building and we don't know how to handle that, Lord. We don't know how to handle the culture that has suddenly appeared, actually, seemingly out of nowhere. We are in a situation where people, men are calling themselves women, are actually standing in pulpits and um, preaching. And, Lord, it seems like everything, everything is turned upside down. Evil is called good and good is called evil. And it's just impossible for us to navigate our way through this without your Holy Spirit, mm. Lord. So that would be my prayer, Father, for me and for all of us, that we would remember that we, each one of us here, are part of the same family, that we are the body of Christ, that we are to lift each other up, that this actually is one of our fellowships, is our fellowship with other believers, and that sometimes the buildings into which we go called church are the mission field and our ministry. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding about that. So our expectation in those places is lessened as we understand that, that probably there are people there desperately in need of knowing Jesus. 
So, Father, I pray, that, I, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would transform us, that we would become full of grace and truth like Jesus, that we would become like our Saviour, and therefore we would be more able to live for his glory. And, Lord, I thank you because you tell us that you will do that, that as we behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we will be transformed from glory to glory as to the Lord. And that's just a wonderful promise, and I thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.